Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. Studio of WHUPLP Hillsboro. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, what difference doth it make? Singer, writer, star. Torquil Campbell is with us. Welcome. to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you every week on whupfm.org. Also, Evergreen via iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Subscribe, download us every week for a month for your pleasure. Murmurradio.com. Social media at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram. Am I forgetting something? Oh, yes, you can. He said to himself, or he said to no one in particular, <laughs> uh, murmurradio at gmail.com. That's M-U-R-M-U-R radio at gmail.com. Send me a note. I'll read them. I'll think about them. And if you, if there's a topic you want to hear more about or you want me to discuss in the show, I'll invite a guest based on your topic. It, it we'll all play together. We'll play well together. Isn't that nice? MurmurRadio.com. I'm the, also the founder of the Modern School of Film, so you can check me out, ModernSchoolFilm.com, and all the relevant social ephemera therein. Welcome. Today on the show, Torquil Campbell of the group Stars, and I don't want to say of the group Stars to sound so blithe and flip about it. He is more than that, but he is one half of the sort of creative brain and vocal brain. Do, do, does a voice have a brain, I guess? Uh, Torquil Campbell is with us today. Amy Milan is his uh, partner, scene partner in crime with stars. Torquil is a, you know, is a sort of artistic acrobat, writer, singer, actor, uh, podcaster, oh, Twitterer, um, He's done films. He actually was a child actor, and his father was an actor of great renown. Uh, Christopher Plummer um, is not his father, but one set of <laughs> uh, Torquil's father is Douglas Campbell. And uh, and Tork's mom, Moira Wiley, 
was also an actor. So there's a lot of actor DNA and a lot of Torque siblings were in the arts and painting and acting and filmmaking. Christopher Plummer, to finish the thought I started a minute ago, Christopher Plummer once said of Torque's dad, Douglas, that Douglas did more for growing up professional theater in Canada than almost anyone I can think of. Christopher Plummer's actually Canadian as well. So lots of cool DNA to choose from here. And the topic today is character. Before we bring in Torque, I want to contribute an idea or four to this concept of character. It's something I've been thinking a lot about. It's, it's uh, you know, you can't watch the news or can't listen to uh, a uh, piece of music or can't watch a film or can't uh, read a comic now without thinking of the character of both the people who create it and the people inside it and meaning the characters. This is a Gordian knot. I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. But the idea of character, really, what is character? Where has character gone? (laughs) This isn't a word we seem to prescribe anymore to mere mortals. We think of it only in in a sense of fiction, characters in a play. And I'm going to give you some background in it and and root it in in an artistic through line because there's some, there's an interesting entrepreneur of character that you may have heard of, but I want to share some of my remembrances of studying character through uh, William Shakespeare in a moment. But one thing digging through the word character I I thought was particularly interesting was it was a noun. It it was a verb and a noun. It comes from um, the old French uh, to to imprint, to engrave. Uh, So it, it, it was... The character was the noun, the actual engraving, and it was also the verb um, to characterize. Uh, The tool used to engrave is also called a character. So an engraver would use a character to create a brand that was a character and, in in essence, characterize. And that's why we tend to call letters, you know, characters and images, characters. So, you know, a missing character. So this word is, is is a... is a Escher-like uh, idea, and and I think we've lost its baseline. A lot of the baseline that we can find historically of character, but it's a little more complex when you think of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates talking about character. They had very similar and very uh, markedly different ideas of what is character. I want to look at Aristotle's with you for a moment or two uh, because it's probably something you can reference this Aristotelian idea of what he called the golden mean, that that there's a sort of range of character. You know, words like virtue came into his, his uh, discussion. Um, ethic, ethics, uh, uh, ethical character, virtue, morality. But essentially he, he gathered these sorts of... Uh, noun and adjective-based satellites around the concept of the golden mean, which is there's two poles of behavior, uh, and we need to stay stable within the middle, balance within the middle. So there's uh, the, the pole of, there's a de- one pole is deficiency, and one pole is excess. So between being deficient in something and being excessive in something, there's the golden mean, the average in a sense. So an example, um, an extreme, recklessness is one extreme, cowardness is another extreme, and in the middle is character, is the balance of character. So within character, 
Aristotle argued that the, the, it's not perfection. It's, it's, um, it's a goal. It's an ideal. It's an ideal to stay in this middle spot, this mean spot, M-E-A-N spot between polarity, uh, i.e. the golden mean. Are we in the golden mean? <laughs> you know, I, I think of character as if we have to eliminate perfection from the idea of character. You know, if you look at the news today and, or you think of politicians today, you think of artists today, we have to remove perfection. But even we can grasp char- character more readily if we remove the, the, the uh, tension of perfection or the aspiration of perfection. No human being is perfect, but being imperfect does not allow a certain behavior. And this may be news to a lot of people. One of the funny, um, so many funny headlines now. Ha ha. One of the one of the most interesting headlines reading uh, the New York Post. Yes, I read the New York Post. Well, I'm a New Yorker. Come on. It's part of my um, my character. Uh, one of the headlines. I forgot the author, but the headline was let's just cancel the the Oscars. <laughs> I mean, basically, why bother this year? Uh, I mean, could you imagine those acceptance speeches this year? I may actually watch the Oscars. <laughs> I want to talk about character before we talk bring in. Torquil, and one of the reasons I wanted to have Tork on the show is he's an actor, who and actors play characters. He's also a singer in a very unique dynamic uh, with Amy, Amy Milan of the group Stars, and there is a kind of scene study quality to the way they write, the way they perform, the way they they craft their art. So you know, and I'm always curious about do singers think their characters. I think Torque has actually called himself a character on stage. And whenever I have a musician on, I like to to look at the um, synergies between acting and performing wrapped around character. Now, again, character, I'm, I'm trying to push character into a place of um, this is... This is how we should behave. But again, it's these shoulds and musts. And and I like Aristotle because I think my interpretation of Aristotle is there's wiggle room. You know, it doesn't mean he wanted you to be uh, evil or bad. But imperfection, that's why mean. It's a range of behaviors that are the virtuosity of character. I want to talk a little bit about Shakespeare before we bring in Torque. I was thinking about character in terms of Shakespeare. And this is my baseline in a way. I, a great great Shakespearean professor uh, taught me, I call it a trick, but it's it's not a trick. It's a real tool. Uh, in terms of understanding a character in Shakespeare, she said what you need to do is assimilate or gather and assimilate into your into your understanding of, of a character in a Shakespeare play. Look at every time that character was referenced by other people. And that's how you understand your character. This was actually essentially an acting exercise. How do you understand your character as a Shakespearean actor? Well, look at how other people talk about him or her, because Shakespeare used this tool so brilliantly. Uh, what was said to someone in, in, in front of them versus behind um, a curtain versus to the audience. That's why the use of the aside is so brilliant. Um, and there's so many prescient ideas of uh, characters talking about characters in Shakespeare. Want to throw a few uh, bon mots at you before we bring in Torque. Uh, measure for Measure, Act One, Scene One. Uh, Duke uh, Vincentio, Vincentio, Vincent uh, is talking to Lord Angelo, 
uh, he wants Lord Angelo to be to take over the leadership of Vienna, and Angelo doesn't want it. And uh, the Duke says, Angelo, there's a kind of character in thy life that to the observer doth thy history fully unfold. And I love that because character is, a, in that view, an existentialistic, the sum total of your actions. It's not simply one or two actions. Again, I like it's both black and white and gray at the same time. Um, another one of my favorites is, uh, <laughs> you know, Richard III. Uh, speaking to the Prince, Act 3, Scene 1, um, he, uh, he, he essentially wants the Prince to, uh, while he's waiting to be crowned and anointed, stay in this tower, and the tower is essentially a prison. And Richard says um, to the audience, as an aside, he says about the Prince, he says, so wise, so young, they say, do never live long. The Prince says, what say you, Uncle? Um, sort of, what you talking about? Richard, <laughs> then Richard turns to him and says, I say, without characters, fame lives long. And I love that because without characters, meaning without words, without bad press, we assume everyone is of a decent character, you know, uh, without without characters, fame lives long. Uh, it's it's lovely. Uh, the quote extends itself thus: like the formal vice iniquity, I moralize two meanings in one word. Iniquity was a theatrical device. Uh, iniquity was all the vices. So he's saying I'm essentially acting as a vice a mechanism, and I'm uh, and I'm playing with this word character, or maybe, just maybe. Marlena Dietrich understood it uh, at the end of Touch of Evil. Uh, Hank Quinlan, her on-again, off-again paramour, is dead. And uh, she is uh, observing his body. And, and uh, uh, Mort Mills, the actor's name is Mort Mills. I was thinking, what is that? Mort Mills, yes. Uh, is talking about uh, what to make of him and this idea in this episode. And Marlena Dietrich says... Uh, what does it matter what you say about people? You know, there's all sorts of dividing lines. Then she walks away. There's all sorts of dividing lines between our own reputation, what we say about people, what we, how we act. Essentially, we need a baseline, right? I don't think we would disagree with this. We need a baseline. Today, to talk about the baseline of character. Oh, also, uh, Torque is not Canadian, but he is Canadian. He actually was born in England. He's an American citizen and an English citizen, but is known, you know, as a, Can a man of Canada. So I am going to I am going to uh, do a void comp on him, uh, a Canadian void comp and get as much out, out of the way of of myth and mythology of, of Canada as I can today. A lot to cover. Torquil Campbell talking about character more anon. Now this. <laughs> The following educational programming is brought to you by Access, the Alberta Educational Communications Corporation. The polka dot door, the polka dot door, let's peep through the polka dot door, songs and stories and so much more. Through the polka dot door, 
This is the time we always say Get ready, get set for Imagination Day We'll tell some tales, we'll pretend and play So come in the polka dot way Have secrets and here is mine Let it be known We have been through hell and high tide I think I can rely on you And yet you stop to recall Heavy words are so lightly thrown But still I leap in front Of a flying bullet field So what difference does it make? So what difference does it make? It makes none But now you have gone And you must be looking very old tonight The devil will find work for idle hands to do I stole and I lied and why? Because you asked me to but now you made me feel so ashamed Because I've only got two hands Well, I'm still fond of you Oh, 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 oh What difference does it make? Oh, oh, so what difference does it make? Oh, oh, oh it makes none But now you have gone and your prejudice won't keep you warm tonight The devil will find work for idle hands to do I stole and then I lied Just because you asked me to But now you know the truth about me You won't see me anymore Well I'm still fond of you Oh 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 but no more apologies No, 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 no No more apologies Oh, I'm too tired I'm so sick and tired And I'm feeling very sick and ill today I'm still fond of you Oh, my sacred one 
my sacred one, my sacred one, my holy one, my unholy one. I'm still fond of you. I'm still fond of you. So for today's guest, it's easier to actually say what he isn't than what he is because he's so <laughs> <laughs> he's so many things. Good God, man! I mean, I don't know when the last time he did a resume, but it, it must be like uh, bound and printed. Uh, he is. I've, I've taken out most of the lies at this point. <laughs> well, well, then it's it, it's one page. Then apparently, uh, he yeah, is. Yeah, it's a very brief resume. Yes. He is one half of the brain co-lead singer and songwriter for Stars, of course. But beyond that, uh, or equal to that. He's also a podcaster, a playwright, a solo performer, an actor, a stage director, composer, designer, a cultural correspondent, a ranter, and a raver, and he might be a Rockefeller. Um, he, though, <laughs> though he was born in England, we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt, because today we want to talk to him about character and Canada. Uh, he once said uh, he'd like Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie to sing at his funeral. He may need to rethink that. Please welcome this charming man, Mr. Torquil Campbell. Torque, welcome to the show, man. What an intro. I feel like the interview can just that can end now. That was the that was the interview. I'll see you, I feel like. I'll see you at the opening night, my friend. Uh, okay, great. <laughs> see you at the Oscars. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Robert. Thanks for talking to me. I want to talk to you because you you're so fascinating. Uh, we've never met, but I, I just find you, your work extraordinary as an artist, but your architecture you. even equally fascinating. And I want to start with this word I've been talking about today, the C word, the other C word, um, character. Um, I was thinking about it. I used to work for a guy, you probably know David Mamet, your guy of the boards. And David always used to say character is defined by action. You know, it's sort of this Greek Aristotelian question of character. Man or woman is defined by what they do versus what they say. What do you think about this word character? Well, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because it does infer... um it doesn't for invention. It's who you invent yourself to be is mm. your character in a way. And that can be both a beautiful idealistic thing. Uh, I think that you can invent um, character for yourself and try to live up to it. But it can also be obviously an incredibly malignant thing. And you can hide behind what seems to be your character. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, character now more than ever for me uh, is a complex word because I've been doing this play about a guy, Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer, who pretended to be a Rockefeller for 15 years. And everybody believed him because they were the kind of people who believed that they should know a Rockefeller. Um, and part of his genius and part of the way his con worked was that he understood that people's characters were inventions mm. and that that if he could if he could play an important part in propping that invention up they wouldn't ask too many questions <laughs> and i think the same could be said of the orange-headed monster you know as long as <laughs> as long as donald trump um plays a character which fits into the worldview of, of people around him that need him to be that character, he'll have a base, he'll have a constituency. And uh, it's when that, when it's, you know, it's when the emperor is revealed to not actually be the person he says he is that he gets himself into a great deal of trouble. The worst thing that could happen right now to Donald Trump is that it would come out in the news that he's in fact been, you know, donating to the NAACP every year and is in fact incredibly 
kind to Melania and has several homosexual friends. This would end his political yeah, career. Yeah, that's that's uh, um, it, that's going off script. I mean, that's improvisation. That's not sticking to the script, yeah. you know. And and yeah. that's improvisation, and it's not. It doesn't feed into how people need him to be in order for them to understand their place in the world. Part, part, so, yeah, uh, I'm sorry, go on. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with I agree with Mamet. Um, you know, I think David Mamet sort of proven the point by becoming a right-wing lunatic. His <laughs> plays were were totally brilliant, but filled with uh, misanthropy and misogyny and rage at just about everybody except David Mamet. And it, 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 that that persona has now eaten the actual David Mamet, and the monster has become the man. He's become um, uh, Teach from American Buffalo. You know, he's become yeah, a, a David Mamet character. He has become one of his characters. <laughs> yes, I mean, that is yes. actually what's happened to, yes. to David Mamet. He's now, you know, Alec Baldwin's guy in in Glen Gary Glen Ross well, he's the closer it's funny and everyone's I, like get the, get that asshole out of the room I, <laughs> we're speaking with Torquil Campbell I do later on want to throw as many cliche Canadian ideas at you but in the meantime tell me oh, about please. tell me about the character of Prime Minister Trudeau oh, tell me about his character because I'm interested in this idea that of the political character as you see it describe his character to a right to an actor let's say you wrote this character and the actor was saying describe the character how would you describe Trudeau as a character Oh, I would describe him as a callow youth um, who uh, is an aristocrat um, and has the presumption of intelligence, of their own intelligence, that all aristocrats seem to carry around with them, despite um, no real evidence that they are actually more intelligent than anybody else. (laughs) Um, And I would say that he's someone who is deeply... uh, deeply in love with himself and has a very uncomplicated relationship with himself. I think he's an unambiguous person. Mm. Um, and he is someone who feels that they, like so many politicians, uh, sort of see things that other people don't see because of their special position as someone who has chosen to speak for us all. Mm. I mean, Justin Trudeau is a funny cat because, you know, uh, Stephen Harper used to be the prime minister and he was a sort of, um, he was like Mike Pence without the personality. I mean, he was a really, really grim neocon ideologue and was a a sort of, it was like having an evil turnip be prime minister. So when Justin Trudeau with his nice socks and his strong jawline and his, you know, his name, um, Pierre Trudeau's remembered very fondly in Canada, despite the fact that when he was in power, we all loathed him mm. constantly. I mean, mm. nobody liked Pierre Trudeau, but there's nothing like dying to make yourself popular. Well, it's, it's like these um, it's like these George Bush uh, Beaumonts that keep coming well, back exactly, now, you yeah. know? So, suddenly, suddenly, Daddy George is everybody's friends. I mean, it's just exactly. people are so stupid, Selective it's memory. We, we romanticize everything, but, um, but go on, yes. I would say that, that Justin Trudeau is a lot like someone like Hal from Henry IV Part One. Wow. Um, um, someone who was looked upon as not being ready to lead, um, was looked upon as being bestowed with leadership rather than earning it. And then once he ascended to leadership, sort of displayed to everyone that really all you need to know is how to pretend to be a leader 
um, you don't actually have to be one. And, you know, to his credit, he really knows how to pretend to be a leader. This sounds like a Zeitgeistian idea. We promote a character rather than a human or rather than a flesh and blood thing. I mean, a la Shakespeare. And we need people to be characters, right? We need Harvey Weinstein to be an uncomplicated mogul who we don't really think about. Gee, you know, that guy seems really unwell. The whole way he lives his life, the way people call him God, yada, yada, yada. This whole thing seems imbalanced and unhealthy, but it feeds into our sense of what a Hollywood mogul's like, so let's not ask too many questions about someone like this. How, how long will it go on that leaders turn out to be abusers before we ask ourselves, what qualities in leadership are we looking for that constantly lead us towards these abusive people? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just their fault, it's our fault too if we endlessly, endlessly require that the people who lead us be unambiguously confident, um, totally dominant, uh, endlessly, uh, blindly optimistic, um, manly, uh, religious, um, you know, easygoing, a guy you can have a beer with, uh, the list of things we need leaders to be um, doesn't include uh, vulnerable mm. Uh, self-reflexive, right. uh, complicated, self-loathing, um, you know, filled well, with doubt about I, the existence of God. I, well, I think you, that they should. Well, ironically, I you think ju- they should have those things. You just hit on something I say constantly. Uh, in America, we will elect a a gay man before we elect an atheist. I think that's the— Absolutely. I think 100% true. I think that's the last job title we would elect, someone who's atheistic. And I want to talk to you a little bit about your chops. You have some amazing theatrical DNA, but theatrical pelts on the wall, and your wife is an accomplished ha- actress as well. When you started out, you trained as an actor. Uh, you've directed Shakespeare. Tell me, how has your acting DNA served you? And how has it cock-blocked you, for lack of a better expression? It seems well, it like- wasn't a decision. You know, it was, I come from a hundred years of theater. Um, I was a child actor. I was in, in a, I was the star of a Hollywood movie by the time I was 10, and I was doing plays um, all year long with my parents without them. It was my life. It was who I was. I, I don't have a memory, uh, really, before I was an actor. Um, so it, it is so deeply tied into mm. my character and mm. to my identity that that it's hard to uh, distinguish one from the other. When I, when I got into my mid-twenties and, and I was in New York being an actor and stars started to take off, I finally had the choice. I finally sort of had the choice to say to myself, do you actually want to be an actor? And I s- decided that I didn't. And, and the reason I think for that is that, I, I, you know, I'm a good actor. I've been taught everything about how to take action on stage, how to occupy space, how to make decisions, how to complete the action, how to, um, you know, not, not speak off the lines, not act off the lines, but use the lines to move the action forward and to convey your intention. Uh, those things I do very well, but I do them to be loved. Mm-hmm. Because 
I learned how to do them as a child. And as a child, you do things pretty much for one reason, which is, you know, to get two reasons, maybe get candy and be loved. Those are the two motivating factors that, that any child, if you want them to do something, um, I'll give you my approval or I'll give you a prize. So, so you must have been given to me. Well, I was going to say you must have been re- positively reinforced. And, and how is that? You know, how is it literally a hug? Not to sound too mundane here, but I don't find it mundane. Um, well, there's a applause. There's applause, right? And there's there's your parents and there's other grown-ups telling you, oh, you're so good at this. Right. And so, you know, when acting became more complicated and I started to get rejected for it and I hit New York City and realized there was 10,000 other dudes who were good at acting who could get the job, uh, acting betrayed, I felt betrayed by it. Hmm. I felt incredibly betrayed by it and lied to about it. And I didn't like, you know, Philip Hoffman acted because Philip loved imagining things and trying to bring them to life. He, he absolutely loved acting more than any person I've ever met because he loved the idea that you could create a person, another person. And it wasn't, he wasn't interested in particularly whether people liked it. Of course, he wanted the audience to enjoy it, but it didn't concern him. Mm-hmm. He didn't worry about it. And I was always worried about it. And, and I felt trapped by that need to be good as an actor. And, um, and so rock and roll afforded me the ability to take what I'd learned as an actor, which is, you know, the stage is a place of action. If you're not taking action on stage, get off it. Really? Yeah, no, I... (laughs) If you don't have an intention on stage, I mean, this is a big mammoth thing, and I think he's very brilliant about this stuff. If you don't have an intention, you are not necessary you know you know it's funny and one thing that is in my head about dave which is speaking with torquil campbell one of the things that is and this has been in my mind a lot about my own career in life you know mamet talked about this meisner idea that you pick an intention in a scene that you can never achieve and this may tie into what you're saying about love and and that Mm -hmm. that sort of Mm -hmm. you pick an intention that you can never achieve because you if you achieve Mm -hmm. your if you achieve your intention the scene ends so you know it's it's interesting i your band, which is really unique, you literally almost—it's almost like having a scene partner in Amy. How did the measure and the and the and the discipline and the—I know stage left from stage right—work against you when you were performing first? Mm-hmm. Per, when you were first performing, forget now, fifteen years later, um, when you were first performing, were you in your head about stagecraft and upstaging each other? And yeah. did you overthink it? Did did you have to get out of your? Oh God, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, yes. And I think I still sometimes do. I mean, you know, there is... Amy and I have developed a language over the years that we've never really gone too much into, but we are capable of of knowing... um, where some where each other are going to move on stage what you know how we're feeling just by the slightest little intake of breath or a facial expression you, that we you, catch in passing you use this beautiful term you said we have the ability to make silent decisions and to me if you yeah. use, if you use those that words those words with scene partners it would sound exactly as elegant um sorry to interrupt but i just you gave me goosebumps or no gave, i think that's, yeah. that's exactly what what i mean is yeah. is that 
you know, we have we make silent silent decisions together, which took years to come to. Of course, we used to have fights constantly. We'd come off stage. She would think that my intention had been one thing. I had meant something completely other. She became annoyed or offended by it. I then had to explain to her what I was trying to do, as well as opposed to what I thought I was doing, uh, or what she thought I was doing, and it was very difficult. And it took years and years, and now I do feel like um, it's almost seamless. The theater is a church where every night you have to convince a group of non-believers to, to get with your religion. Rock and roll, you're, you're having communion. They're yes. true believers you're, when they walk in the door. You're right? singing, you're singing the Bible, to the choir, yeah. You're, singing, you're literally singing, singing to, to the, the choir, choir right. <laughs> and they say amen, and they sing back to you. Right. And so it's a very, very different kettle of fish yeah. from saying, hey, I have this religion for you. Um, I'm going to put this costume on and tell you about it, and hopefully by the end of the night, you're going to believe in my religion. That is a right. much more right. tricky and much more nuanced activity. What blocks me sometimes is that I try to over-direct myself on stage, or I am too aware of what I feel or what I perceive the audience needs, and I start to push. I push them in one direction, or I push them in another direction, or I push myself in one direction or another. And as soon as that happens, of course, you lose the energy. It turns into inertia. So, you know, my struggle has been, and continues to be, as an artist in general, I think, to not be too facile, to not use my ability to know how to solve problems on stage um, all the time, to let the problem fester for a minute and see what might happen if I do. It's, it's hard. When you can solve the problem, it's very difficult to have the discipline to not solve it. It's, it's nice to have a 15-year rehearsal process, though, and you guys have er yeah. you, you've er you've earned that. You know you don't get 15 years uh, when you're doing a play. We're speaking with Torquil Campbell. I was thinking of, uh, this may be a hat on a hat, but I was thinking of Morrissey, and I'm assuming you still, are flowers still incorporated, throwing flowers into your uh, stagecraft? We haven't done it in a while, um, well, this, because it, it costs so much money. <laughs> <laughs> and, also, <laughs> and also because Evan Cranley, who's our bass player and deals with a lot of the stagecraft of our show, in other words, the sets and stuff like that, right. has sort of put the kibosh on it. I miss them because they're great props, yeah. you know, and, and what Morrissey understood about flowers was they were, you could come on and make so much noise and be so aggressive and the flowers would belie that. The yeah. flowers would make you look weak. And so you could use them, you know, Morrissey used to hit people with them. Yes. Um, yes. And I loved that mixture of aggression and softness that, that having the flowers on stage. My favorite is seeing uh, some of, seeing some of those early uh, Morrissey and you see Johnny Marr and and literally Morrissey just has the flowers in his sort of where the tramp stamp back pocket. Yeah, like sort of where the tramp yeah. stamp in the back pocket. It's just kind of there and I want to ebb into a little bit of something actually I spoke with uh, Leslie Feist about it, a friend and uh, a running partner of yours occasionally. Um I had Leslie or Feist or Leslie, I call her Leslie, I'm sure you do too. And we were talking. I call her Les. I'm sure you call her Les or whatever sweet <laughs> sweetness. Um, you know, I, I was talking. We were talking about this idea of feist. You know, in quotes, right? Feist. What is feist? And I said, is feist a character? She said no, mm -hmm. and she gave a very eloquent answer. And then I said, are you acting? 
because you know you're using this name that's it's your surname but it's not a given name you know and she kind of twisted and turned and I think by the end of her own uh, response she believed maybe she was doing some form of acting you know I found uh-huh. I found a really qu- interesting quote of yours where you said the person I play in stars can you given the pretext of Leslie and that quote what does that mean that story about Feist is interesting because uh, you know one thing that musicians will resist a great deal is if you imply to them that what they're doing up there is not completely them I think one of Gord Downey's great gifts was that he understood that that he was playing Gord Downey on stage it didn't it didn't mean that he wasn't that person but that 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 Gord Downey was a heightened, different, um, sort of beatific and completely single-minded version of himself. You isolated you, exactly. You, you invent yourself. Yeah, that was Leslie's and I, I, thing. I don't yeah. understand the extent to which actors are not acting right. on stage. That's the other thing. Tell me about that, that. You know, my wife is a brilliant. Well, my wife's a brilliant actor, and she creates the character, and she does a lot of work to understand the character. But every day she goes, she's Moya. And she tries to get through the show on that day. Um, so, you know, if, if, if Moya wasn't there, the character wouldn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. you, you can't just get up and put on a funny suit and do a funny accent and become someone else. If you are not actually that person to some degree, wow. it won't be believable. So, you know, we invent, as, as rock musicians, we invent our mythology. And even though we look the same, we wear our own clothes, I can tell you that Feisty offstage is not the same as Feisty on stage. but there are aspects to what she's doing on stage, of course, that are very purely her. You are an orator of the highest order, man. It's amazing. I'm, I'm kind of gobstruck by how eloquent you are about what you do. Um, and it's really... Oh, that's very kind of you. No, it's, it's... It comes from my mother, who was, uh, you know, a Radcliffe girl. And in my mother's family, um, your ability to express yourself could, 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 everything could depend on it. Because if you couldn't come up with something cutting to say, someone would come up with something cutting to say to you. Uh-huh. So you always had to be ready. Um, that's, you know, that's a Boston family. My uncle is a guy named Andrew Wiley, who is, uh, a literary agent. The Wiley Agency. Oh, of, I, I, the know the, Wiley Agency. I know the yes. Wiley Agency. I didn't know that. And he call him the jackal in the publishing industry because he, he's famous for being able to end both conversations and careers in one sentence or less. I think that's a compliment. He's a very articulate man. <laughs> yeah, that's a backwards compliment. <laughs> I wanted to... If he's working for you, it is. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> if he's on your team. One other meta beat and then the last uh, bad uh, Canadian game show I want to play with you. Every time you read about stars, it's so he's Montreal-based dot, dot, dot stars. And I've never read of a band yes. that's tagged with Montreal-based or Canadian-based more than you you all. And I don't know if you hate that or love that. What does location serve for you? Can you, is there a record, you know, what is the, the being of the land or being in a place in Canada serve for the record? Or is it just agnostic? Is location agnostic for you when you guys are doing your art? Um, no, it isn't. I just drove across Canada, actually, because I was moving our stuff out to Vancouver for the year. My wife's going to be working out here next year. So I, I literally just arrived yesterday from a drive across the entire country. Wow. Um, 
and there's nothing out there, man. Let me tell you something about Canada. It is empty. Come on up. We got plenty of room. It's not very nice out there. It's very cold and lonely and empty, but you can have it. Come on up. Um, I mean, I think part of the reason that we always get called a Montreal band, and that's true. We do always get called a Montreal band, despite the fact that I don't actually live in exactly. Montreal. You the rest of them do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Go There's on, something about, I think, the romance of our band and the doom of our band that combination that is very Montreal mm. um, and that has really deeply informed the way we've made music. Um, Montreal's a sad place. It has this reputation as a party town, and it is that. But, you know, once you turn 30, the party's over. Yeah, and you're, you're in a town where, um, where, you know, if you're Anglo, you're in the vast minority. You're not really a part of the cultural scene. You're not really a part of what's going on in the city. And um, you're living in a place where it's winter, six months a year. So you, you hole up on your own a lot. Um, and it can be very, very lonely and very um, – despair is easy to access in Montreal. But there's also this deep kind of romance to it because of the Frenchness and because of the Catholicism and the sort of the, – the sense it has that it's an unseen, unheard underdog um, – there is this romance to the place. So I think stars are called a Montreal band because we combine those two things about Montreal that are most palpable, which is its sadness and its romance. Yeah, I, and, and I think that makes us a kind of Montrealese band. But, Central, if you yeah. listen to the first Arcade Fire record, that's a very Montreal record. Mm. Funeral is a very Montreal record. And in fact, our jam space, Mount Zoomer, is now is where we are presently jamming, is the place where they recorded Funeral. That was and then passed it on to Wolf Parade, who made a record called At Mount Zoomer there. And it's it's a shitty little apartment above a disco in the middle of the mile end. Um and you can hear Montreal in funeral, and then they moved. Mm. And I think Arcade Fire, you know, as Americans, one's a Texan, uh, you can hear all kinds of places in their music now. To me, they strike my—they strike me as a as a much more American band now than than as a Canadian band. Um, not that, that there's anything wrong with that, but that there isn't that sense of Montreal anymore in Inter their music. Interesting. So here's the lightning round. Um, these are what I would fabulous. I, I love this stuff. I can do this all day. National Canadian icons and treasures. In no particular order, I'm going to throw some nouns at you that I barely know their definition, but tell our international audience what these mean. <laughs> Do the best I can, even though I'm not actually a Canadian citizen. I am. Drum roll, please. Look, you can't, American. <laughs> you can't have it both ways. You cannot have it both ways. <laughs> I've been trying for years. I uh, Take a number, my friend. Okay. What is a toque? T-O-Q-U-E. A toque is a, what do you guys call it? I don't know. It's one of those hats we with would no call brim it. on it. Yeah, we would. It keeps you warm in the winter. <laughs> we would call it hipster trash. It? Yeah, you call it a toque, right? I mean, which is a cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had a. It's not cool to wear a toque. It's, it does. They don't. They're not good. I'm not. I'm not in favor of toques. In fact, I think hats in general have to be worn with enormous amounts of thought. You know. <laughs> I blame Colin don't just Farrell. Go around wearing hats. <laughs> I blame Colin Farrell. I think he started that. He brought that craze back. Okay. What is a yeah. what is a double double? A double double is a coffee. <laughs> Purchased at a place called Tim Hortons. <laughs> yes. Tim Hortons is a chain. Now, you guys have chains in the United States, it's but you don't have any chain no. with the reach and the sort of like deep 
cancerous <laughs> occupative power of Tim Hortons. There is a Tim Hortons within 20 yards of you, no matter where you are in Canada, right. everywhere. And a double-double is a large coffee with two creams and two sugars. Right. Repulsive stuff. We, Absolutely disgusting. Our closest thing would be Dunkin' Donuts, but it's not It's not part of the, yeah. it's not part of the but, wallpaper. But Dunkin' Donuts, like imagine if Dunkin' Donuts sort of represented everything that it meant to be American. <laughs> that's, what, that's how important Tim Hortons, even though it's owned by Brazilian billionaires <laughs> who are busy cutting down the rainforest, we are ignoring that. That's yeah. part of our character. You see, we've, we've, we've taken it on. What, yeah. what is a serving? Yet. A serviette is a paper napkin. Okay. No, I, I, these are going to run the range. These are going to run the range. And you know what? Serviettes, are, it's, that's an interesting one because I think serviettes, you guys have kind of, you know, we're losing a lot of these words to, to the behemoth to the south. And I think that might have, have gone the way of all flesh. Of I'm the not dodo. Sure I've heard serviette recently. Yes, okay. I'm going to bring that back. I'm going to go out to lunch after this and ask someone for a serviette in the middle of it. I knew that was, know what I'm talking about. I knew about. that was a curveball. We're going to pick up steam a little bit. What is a butter tart? <laughs> a butter tart is simply a tart with uh, sugar and butter. It's Quebecois in origin. Right. Um, it's repulsive. Again, most Canadian <laughs> traditions the theme. are disgusting. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they're absolutely <laughs> disgusting. Hockey, butter tarts, Tim Hortons, they're all just foul. Um, and this is, it's a foul little lump of fat and sugar which you eat when uh, you go to church fets or when someone gives you some and they're sitting there waiting for you to eat them, then you take a bite. Then that, you never eat them. A couple more nouns, then expressions. You like the expressions. What is a bunny hug? A bunny hug? Yeah, I may have stumped you. I have absolutely one. no idea what Look, a bunny hug is. I will tell you what do it you is. you know what a bunny I hug is? I do. It's it, used exclusively in Saskatchewan. It is a hooded sweatshirt. Uh-huh. They call it a bunny hug. How's that? What sweatshirt? It's it's a hooded sweatshirt. So we would call it a hoodie, right? They call it a bunny hug in Saskatchewan. They call it a bunny hug in Saskatchewan? How do you like them butter tarts? What the hell is wrong with those people? <laughs> Tell me about it. That's very strange. Got, that is very, very strange. A couple other ones. What is a freezy? A freezy. A freezy is a long tube. Again, I mean, everything in Canada is basically just <laughs> sugar in various states of uh, either frozenness or liquid. Uh, Freezies are long sticks of frozen confectionery that you that are encased in plastic, and you bite, they rip the top off with your teeth, mm-hmm. and then you sort of push the tube of ice up into your mouth. Right. And right. that's a freezy. Fucking freezies in the rain. We have, uh, there's a star song that references freezies. I, I, we have something called flavor ice, which is exactly the same there thing. There you go. You rip it up. Yeah. What is yeah. this? Is a this is a fascinating one to me because it's so un PC. What is homo milk? Homo milk. <laughs> <laughs> homo milk is homogenized milk. But see, here's the thing about Canada that you have to understand. <laughs> yeah. We really pride ourselves on having no sense of irony. It's an irony-free zone. I love that. Uh, we just like we're unblinking and innocent, so we can call things bunny hugs or homo milk. <laughs> yes. And there's no indication. There's no sort of. There's nothing to be to be gleaned from that. I we're love perfectly, that. Uh, you know, we're apple pie eating, heterosexual, oh. right wing. Don't worry, everyone. All right. We're not actually homosexual. We just have <laughs> milk. <laughs> 
homosexual. I'm, I'm sick of irony, <laughs> but your point is well taken. Okay, a couple of expressions. <laughs> These are fun. Uh, what is to hang a Larry? Uh, I, believe, I believe that's turning left. Correct. What is hang is a... Is that right? Yes. And what is right? Do you know what... If, if I said hang a Larry, that means we're going to turn left. What would I say if I wanted to turn right? Do you know? Do you remember? A Ronnie? A Roger. Would it be a, a Roger? Yeah. See, now again, those are... I mean, I feel like that's like... You know, you met a Canadian in 1974 <laughs> and went on a drive with them, and they were like, hey, you know, can no. I borrow your bunny hug? It's getting cold in here. That's I'll just good. turn a Larry over here. I, these things are, I don't know. This is like, you know, if, know if, if Richard Linklater made a movie about Canada, these are some of the expressions. <laughs> yeah. um, the, these are, I, exactly. I got you some more modern ones here. What are weekends at the cottage? Someone said, ask him about weekends at the cottage. What does that mean? Uh, it's a big thing in Canada, you know, because the cities hold limited interest due to our not having any uh, paintings that we can hang or anything. Um, there's not a lot going on. So what you want to do is get out of the city and go to the countryside. And cottages are massive things because, you know, unlike America, you know, you drive out of a city in America and you drive into suburbs for three hours. And by the time you reach the end of those suburbs, you get to the next city. In Canada, you drive out of a city for 20 minutes and you are in the middle of nowhere. Mm. So it's very easy to get to cottages mm. and people are very obsessed with cottages. It's, it's a sort of, if you can get to a cottage, it's sort of like if the Hamptons existed in all of America, right. if you can get to a cottage, <laughs> you've proven that you're actually a, a, you know, a worthwhile human being. And if you don't know someone with a cottage, you should probably just kill yourself. That's sort of the, <laughs> well, your worthless <laughs> tool. This is our last beat, which is the multimedia beat, and it's going to end with something a little more serious to get to get out with as we say goodbye. But um, TV shows. Now, you know, my pablum. Believe it or not, in the States, my problem, part of it was you can't do that on television. I used to love that show. Uh-huh. I, I was yeah. like in love with Moose until I became older and I thought she's probably, I'm not probably her type. Um, you know, Wasn't Alanis Morissette on You Can't Do That on Television? Alanis was on that, and Drake was on De- yeah. Degrassi Junior High, as, as you well know. That's right, yep. But my, my yep. Canadian yep. sources said, don't ask about those show, uh, shows, ask about the Red Green show. Did you watch that as a child? Oh, the Red Green Show. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't watch it, you know. Um, <laughs> I guess people did. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody was watching that it. Was, yeah, no, I was watching, you know, All in the Family. Like, I, you know, we, did, we don't make good sitcoms. I'm just going to come right out and <laughs> yes. say that. We make, you know, Canadians are funny but not when they try. When <laughs> yes, they start right. to try, it, you get into it's, it turns really, really grim very quickly. Um, and I feel like the Red Green Show was a perfect example of that. What, what was I, the I Red Green Show? Was that sort of like the a... The Red Green Show was a show on CBC, and it was a sketch guy whose name, I think, was something like John Smith or John John or something. <laughs> I mean, like the most boring name in the world. Right. And he was this sort of very meek, bearded man who'd clearly gone into the CBC studios when no one else had pitched a show in 20 years and said, will you let me tell really lame jokes as this character, Red Green, who's sort of the quintessential, like, shed-dwelling, you know, motorbike-fixing, hick Canadian. And he would stand and tell sort of funny, wistful, 
stories about being Canadian. And I mean, to me, the Red Green Show was like, if it came on, that was, uh, you know, when you're 11, you'll watch anything on television. Right. But when the Red Green Show came on, you, you finally gave up and were like, okay, I surrender. I guess I have to go do something else now <laughs> because this is just, this is too fucking boring it's to watch. All, it's all fun and games yeah. till the Red Green Show comes yeah. on. So I won't ask you about, exactly. Mr. about Mr. Dress Up in Polka Dot Door. We'll save that for our next talk. Oh, well, yes. But see, when in those during that era, I was living in England, and so I don't really have much experience of polka dot door. I remember the song, the polka dot door, the polka dot door. See you soon at the polka dot door with songs and stories and so much more. Do 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 do, do at the polka dot door. That's, wow, that was the, oh that's what God. you remember these things. I right? shouldn't. I shouldn't be crying right now, but that's. I, I can't. I can't stop. The heart wants what the heart Bringing wants. Back the memories. <laughs> Not at all. You know, let me let me ebb in because it's funny. I had Daniel Anwaz speaking with uh, Torco Campbell, so generously giving us time here today. Uh, I had Dan Lanois on the show, another proud Canadian, and I asked him. Oh, wonderful genius, incredible, of a man. and such a cool guy. Um, I asked him, yeah. "What do you think?" of Canadian filmmakers he said I don't so I want to get uh-huh. your get your thoughts on a couple of Canadian filmmakers because I actually think this is an interesting time for people who are steeped in the blood of, of Canadian DNA um, the, the the joke my first joke is let me get it out of the way that the most famous Canadian filmmaker ever is James Cameron who was actually born in, in Canada uh, he, that's true he, it is he was yeah. born in he is the most Canadian he was born in ca- born in ca- Toronto right yeah Kapuska uh, Kapuskasing? Oh, Kapuskasing. 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 Tell me, some of these are my favorites. I'm going to throw some names at you. You tell me, give me a thought. And and this is not just about opinion. You'd have to say hate, like, hate, like. Just are they, I'm almost more curious, what is the Canadian thought about these folks? You know, are these these an interesting gateway drug into the cinema of Canada? So here we go. Uh, Guy Madden. Guy Madden was a big thing for me when I was a teenager, Winnipeg filmmaker. And, um, you know, one of those things that when I saw him as a teenager, along with the Mary Margaret O'Hara record, Miss America, um, was sort of the first potential that seemed out there that Canada could be cool, that you didn't just have to be in a bar band and you didn't just have to make cute coming-of-age movies that they could show on the CBC, that you could actually be an artist, quote-unquote. Yeah beautiful, strange filmmaker, someone that I've tried often to reach out to, and and uh, he has no interest whatsoever in talking to me. But Well, I'm, I know I'm him, and I'm happy fan. to slip him a note in gym class. He's a, he's a, I a, hear he's a lovely man, he and he's worked with some friends of mine, but I think he's a man very much in his own world, and a, a perfectionist, as I understand it. And, you know, uh, I have a lot of respect for him because he stayed in Winnipeg, and he's continued to make films... Uh, completely on his own terms, and and you know he had his moment where he could have gone and made some crappy Hollywood film, and, yeah. and he didn't. Well, you know, you know um, what you know. It's quite extraordinary. Well, you know what's fascinating about him? He does still make uh, Canada or Winnipegian films, Canadian films, but you know he runs the film program at Harvard University right now. Isn't that fascinating? I it, didn't know it, that. It's a that new is as, fascinating. It's a new assignment for him, and and I think huh. you know I don't know how long it will last because he's such as you say an independent spirit, but he runs the filmmaking program there. Uh, the, a bit of trivium. Um, others, others who are maybe more Mount Rushmorean. Uh, to me, maybe the Godfather, David Cronenberg. Is he still cool? Is it still cool to like David Cronenberg, or is that a different time, a different place, a different artistry? 
Oh, no, it's very cool to like David Cronenberg, especially once you meet David Cronenberg, because he's such an unbelievably kind and, and gentlemanly fellow. And, awesome. awesome. Um, like so many great artists, particularly photographers, I had the great luck of knowing Richard Avedon um, in my life. And, and, you know, Avedon's greatest gift, he had so many, <laughs> and they were so great. But his greatest gift, in my opinion, was his ability to listen to people and to look at you and to make you feel seen. And um, great photographers, people who know how to tell stories beautifully, uh, they can see you. And David Cronenberg has that same quality. When you meet David Cronenberg and talk to him, you feel like, God, I didn't know I was this important, you know? And I think he conveys that to absolutely everyone he encounters. Um, and, you know, he's also someone that I think has sort of stuck to it in Canada. He, he makes m movies with Hollywood money, but he makes movies in Canada and he makes no secret about where they're set. Right, and right, um, right. that's always been something that I've really appreciated because that's the only way to build a mythology and to build a culture, right, is to mythologize it yourself. Chicago isn't a myth unless someone says it is. Right. And um, Scorsese's seven, like Scorsese's New York. Right. Yeah. 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 That stuff is, is invented. Yeah. Uh, and, and unless somebody believes it, it doesn't happen. So I think Cronenberg's been amazing at, at sort of creating the mythology of Canadian cinema and yeah. at making movies that people go see, um, which has always been troublesome for Canadian filmmakers. Well, <laughs> they don't yeah. seem to know how to do that very well. A, a couple of the young guns before we wrap up. Uh, filmmakers, Sarah Polly, who I think people have to catch themselves and say, all oh, right, she is a filmmaker. I find her to be a really Absolutely. fascinating modern filmmaker. What do you think about Sarah, you know, actress into filmmaking? Do you think of her work as... I literally cannot say enough about everything that Sarah Polly is. Um, wow. I've known Sarah since she was eight years old. She, she and I did a film together when I was a kid, and uh, she was a spectacular eight-year-old. She was witty and brilliant and kind. And, you know, she's had a very hard life, Sarah. She was in hospital for, I think, about six months as, a, as an adolescent with scoliosis so bad she couldn't move. Mm. Her mother died shortly after that. I, I mean, I'm not sure there's anybody I really admire more in a way. Wow. Sarah could have gone and been the latest Hollywood starlet and run around in a tank top and killed aliens. And there was never any moment of her life where she even considered doing such a thing. Um, she is a brilliant auteur. I mean, I think telling stories is stories we tell is one of the most original and beautiful films I've seen in ages. She's an extraordinary actress. She's an extraordinary social activist. Um, she's nobody's fool and she takes care of her family and she keeps her nose clean and doesn't, um, waste time with nonsense that fame can sometimes, uh, bestow upon people. I mean, she's a true, uh, gift. Where do I sign? Um, my goodness. And you know what I love about it is, and you know this, you meet so many people that, you feel the 180 degree opposite about. So to he I could listen yeah. to you compliment someone on that level so much because her work away from her is, is just a gorgeous, subtle, supple, spectacular, wonderful film. And yeah. it's and funny being like 24 years old and saying, I'm going to hire Julie Christie exactly. and direct her, you know, yeah. and she did it. Uh, she's 
I mean, she's incredibly smart and incredibly kind and uh, an all-around champion. The last name I want to pepper you with before our goodbye, and we were speaking about him a lot recently, Denis Villeneuve. Uh, you know, he's, uh-huh. we, we, I had Hampton Fancher on the show, and we talked about Blade Runner, and, you know, I think he's, not, he's the, the cat's out of the bag. But it's funny, maybe people don't think he's Canadian, but he is. Well, I'll tell you, uh, I think most people in Canada don't think of him as a Canadian filmmaker. They think of him as a Quebecois filmmaker. Uh, and I would I would even argue that if you put Denis Villeneuve on a lie detector test <laughs> and said to him, are you a Canadian filmmaker? And he, if he answered yes, he would be proven to be lying <laughs> because Quebecois are Quebecois. Right, and right. I think that the really sort of deep and crucial thing that people must understand about Canada is we are two countries. We are two solitudes, as Hugh McLennan said. Um, Quebec is Quebec. And if you are a Francophone Quebecer, you will identify as Quebecois before you identify as Canadian any day of the week. I think that Denis Villeneuve is very much a Quebecois filmmaker. I think his aesthetic is very Quebecois. And he's a product of the Quebecois film industry. The, you know, If you look at, at Canadian films, the movies that have gone out and really made it in the world are, tend to be French Canadian films. Denis Arquin, Denis Villeneuve, um, the that new kid who won Xavier Dolan, Dolan, D- Xavier Dolan. Dolan, right, right, because they're funded. Yeah, they're funded. They have an incredible funding program. Um, our funding program in English Canada for films is a disaster. Um, it, it, you know, if you want to make an English film in Canada, you have to go and get a C-list former American TV star to, to be in it. It's really, really lowest common denominator. Um, and it's very hard, incredibly hard, to make a film in English Canada just to get the money together. Um, and in Quebec, uh, because they're trying to promote their culture and protect their culture, um, they have enormous support. And surprise, surprise, when you support artists and you fund them, they make great art that then goes out and makes money. One of the most frustrating things for me is, as an artist is trying to make people understand that investing in art pays off at about seven to one. Mm. There is nothing less um, pointless than investing in art. Art creates jobs, not just for artists, but for the whole neighborhood around which the art is being presented in. And, uh, you know, I don't know why we have such a hard time in our culture with the, with the notion that art is something that can have practical, actual use in the world, as opposed to thinking of it as, you know, you're all just running around in cravats, wasting our money. But I wanted to <laughs> actually ask you to, to end on Gord Downey, and, and only, not to, I didn't want to put a hat on a hat on a hat, but I, I think, you know, with, with Gord's passing, I think people, you know, he was a musician's musician as far as I'm concerned, you know, but I, I, I don't think we fully got it uh, in in America what that meant. So, and you've been probably, and I hate public eulogies, so I apologize, I'm about to ask you, not for a eulogy, but uh, what what can't we understand? What couldn't the non-Canadian understand about the passing of someone like Gord Downey? So I'm going to allow you to make give your most critical statement. Does that make sense? Like, what could one never understand about the loss of Gord Downey to a cultural uh, country uh, reality? What what could we never get about Gord's passing? I think the thing that, that that's hard maybe for people who aren't Canadian to understand about Gord is he represents, I think, 
uh, you know, uh, taking it back to the beginning of our conversation, yeah. w- what is character? You know, he represents what I think Canadians uh, see as the best of themselves. We have this country, which, as I said, is incredibly empty, incredibly rural, a place where people are very isolated. And and for lack of a better word, many of them are very live very simple lives. They're working class people. They're rural people. They're farmers and truckers and guys who work in fields. The tragically hip were a bar band from Kingston, Ontario. They sound like a bar band. Um, They look like a bunch of guys you might see in a bar in Kingston. They didn't have any rock and roll outfits. They were all just sort of square looking guys. And then there was Gord. And Gord represented the other part of Canada, which is a Canada of cities isolated from one another, which have which are these incredible kind of hotbeds of culture, because we are trying to get something going in the midst of all this ice and all this countryside. And so the, the hip and Gord in particular represented that dichotomy of can, in Canada between the intellectual, the kind of European tradition um, that Canada puts itself into. We don't really think of ourselves culturally as being like America. We think of ourselves culturally as being more like Europeans. And it's, it, 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 certainly the French do, the Quebecois do. Um, so Gord was a, a poet, an unapologetic poet, a guy who took the details of this rural place, the hockey arenas and the little town names like Bob Cajun and, you know, the characters uh, from the a guy from the Toronto Maple Leafs or some obscure figure from indigenous history and put them into this rock music. And we were allowed the opportunity to be both by Gord. We could be both poets and hockey players. We could be farmers and we could be esthetes. And he didn't ask that you choose one side. And I think that appealed to the Canadian spirit and to the Canadian character very, very deeply. We are people who don't want to choose one or the other. Um, And he understood that about Canada. And he made fun of us in his own gentle way. He understood that Canadians don't take themselves very seriously and kind of demand to be mocked. And, and Gord mocked you when he was on stage, not in a cruel way, but in a way that made you ask questions about yourself and made you um, doubt maybe, you know, your baseball hat wearing persona or your trendy jacket wearing persona. Maybe you weren't actually those people. Maybe you were just a person. Maybe you were like Gord. Maybe you were someone who hung out in hockey arenas and read Rambo and, um, his incredible ability to to synchronize all of that and to synthesize all those different aspects of the Canadian culture uh, made him unlike anyone else. Cohen was a pure esthete. Cohen was pure Europe. You know, Leonard Cohen was the Canadian hero who was the first sophisticated man in Canada, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and and somebody somebody like Neil Young is the pure trucker. You know, the guy yeah. who sits in the countryside and he, he, wrote, he wrote one of his greatest songs about his truck and how much he loves it. You know, <laughs> uh, he, he was a person who and and like so many guys who, who kind of speak to that core Canadianness, he left. Um, he didn't live here. He wasn't actually here to see Canada go from being the place he knew it as a child to being the place it has become. Mm. And 
Gord was here for it. Gord didn't leave. Gord didn't go to Los Angeles. He didn't go to New York. He stayed, and he kept watching us, and he kept listening to us, and we kept listening to him as a result. They say, or at least I say, the greatest teachers don't teach you what to think. They teach you how to think. I'm humbled mm-hmm. to say I'm humbled to say you have been the greatest teacher today. Um, you're con- no, I appreciate that. No, I, I moved uh, to speechlessness. I usually uh, you heard my intro. I can't even match it because of uh, what you what you. <laughs> well, um, I'm a massive fan of you, of the show, so no, it's been a real honor to chat with friend, you, my friend. The next time we do this, um, we'll be in person. I'd love to catch up with you guys on the road. And in the well, me- let's do it. Let's make sure that happens, shall we? In the meantime, you're awesome, and I wish you nothing but the best and the wind at your back. Be well on this tour and all tours. Ahead. Uh, take care, my friend. It's been a pleasure. Ditto, brother. Thank you so much, and we'll see you soon. Cheers, Torque. How did we go from character to Canada and and hook a, a left turn uh, back towards Morrissey and then move on to Gordowney? What a great goodbye from Torque. This topic of character isn't something I could pinned down like a butterfly. I will just leave it in this way that now in our modern world, we're forgetting that the word character is a brand, a branding of someone, someone's core, someone's core essence. What, what is your character? I think we've been wrapped up in characters fiction for so long and I think it's it's fun to get back to what is a character what is your baseline character is what defines us as human beings action word both taste reputation um, the company we keep the things we listen to what defines one's character and I think everyone answers this uniquely maybe Shakespeare's my my um, Retainer for it. I mean, retainer as in the thing you put in your mouth to keep your teeth straight. <laughs> Maybe Shakespeare's mind, just because I, I find he so transparently wrote about character and history and he, he, he bow tied it up so beautifully. So I, I guess my point in looking at Shakespeare as a, as a, as a gauze through which to understand character better is because he was able to put so many, Radical and disparate elements, politics, sex, love, family, uh, patriotism, song, humor, death, life, food, animals, suicide, and so transparently talk about character. Now when we transparently talk about character, people look Pollyanna-ish. And I'm not suggesting there's one absolute way to live life, but I am wondering does it matter what what does matter in our human vocabulary in our human action our our activity or the noise we conduct as human beings what matters everyone answers this differently of course but i'm i'm hoping it still matters i'm i'm hoping these things still matter and i don't like to hope i'm merely suggesting that ha- we, this episode and episodes afoot Man, I'm Shakespeare all over today. More episodes afoot, we'll look at what one uses as a gauge for character, character study, you know, of a non-dramaturgical nature. 
what what is the totality of character? How do we arrive at the definition of character? And everyone does it differently. And I don't think it's wrong to do it a way that that one would potentially do it. But I guess my point is you can do it in a fair fair way, an objective way. You can give yourself some wiggle room. But I do think it's time to get back in touch with that. What actions do we want to use as portrayal pieces for our character? I'm, I think about this a lot for myself. I'm confident in myself, but of course I think about it because once we assume anything, even about ourselves, the scene is over. We want to thank Torquil Campbell for being with us today. Uh, Tork, man, can this guy talk about anything? Yes. I, I honestly could have talked more about Canada with him. <laughs> How did we get from character to Canada? I guess they both start with a C. Murmurradio.com, at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Subscribe to us at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Murmurradio.com. All the episodes are there every week, live, WHUPFM, Friday. It's Friday. Be well. See you soon.